I'm Laura Barrera, and welcome to the 20th episode of our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Why Phosphorus is Leaving the Farm and What to Do About It, is being brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Offering complete dry and liquid fertilizer systems, Montag will help you reap the benefits of deep banding fertilizer, which can reduce your rates, increase your yields, and assist your stewardship goals. They also offer high-capacity auto-steer carts that help keep soil compaction under control by precisely following in the tracks of any implement. To learn more about their fertilizer solutions, visit www.montagmfg.com or call them today at 712-852-4572. We've all heard the reports about toxic algae blooms in Lake Erie and other bodies of water. And we've also learned that the majority of phosphorus contributing to these blooms is coming from farms, which begs the question, why is this happening? In this presentation from the 2016 National No-Tillage Conference, Joe Nestor, an independent crop consultant and owner of Nestor Ag in Northwest Ohio, will share his thoughts on what has changed over the years that is causing phosphorus to leave fields and provide some strategies on what no-tillers can do to ensure their phosphorus stays in place. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing, we welcome Joe Nestor to talk about why phosphorus is more soluble today and the four P's no-tillers should follow to keep phosphorus in the soil and out of local waterways. I I always enjoy talking here at the National No-Till Conference. I went to the first one here in Indianapolis and I get a chance to talk a lot of different places around the country throughout the year, and uh, this is the most enjoyable, really because a lot of conferences I go to, I think they talk at you, and at this one they talk with you, which is a really good thing. So some advice maybe for for the first-timers and some of the younger guys that are here, when you see these guys talking out there in the hall and and wherever, wade right in there, because sometimes you can just stand next to those people and and the knowledge will fall off. But you ought to be able to make six, eight, ten contacts here and use that list that they put in your package and then talk to those people throughout the year. And then every year that you come back here, that network is going to grow. It's very valuable. One time, I guess it was in 2010, Frank called me and he, he wanted me to go with him to Wall Street to talk to a bunch of investment fund managers about agriculture. They didn't know anything about agriculture. And I asked Frank, I said, so why'd you pick me? And he said, well, he said, uh, we thought about Dwayne Beck. He's a really intelligent guy and, and has a lot of infield experience and great communicator and things like that. But we, these people there don't know anything about agriculture. And we thought that Dwayne's intellect level might be over what they could handle. So that's why we called you. So. <laughs> I said, all right, well, I went, Alan Berry went, then Maury Taylor, who owns Titan Tire, went along. So Maury's up there talking first, and 
And if you didn't know it, Maury ran for president in the Republican primary years ago. So I'm set by Frank, and Maury walks up to the podium, and the, the topic that day was the Guantanamo prisoners, was all over the news and, and what to do with them. Frank, you remember this, don't you? And Maury steps up, and they, all these fund managers, 60, 80 of them, and he says, I'm Maury Taylor, I own Titan Tire, and I ran for president. And if I was president today, I'd solve Guantanamo today. All I need is a 45 and one bullet apiece, and it'd be <laughs> over. I looked at Frank, and he says, maybe we should ask Beck to come along here. <laughs> okay, so this is where we're located, right in northwest Ohio. You see Lake Erie here, and we consult in an area about 150 mile radius around Defiance County. But about 80% on what we work on, the watershed is Lake Erie. So we, we deal with uh, lake bed soils, glacial till soils, but the watershed's Lake Erie. So that's got a lot of attention lately. And it's made us, you know, I, I think that's really helped us be on our toes in managing our nutrients up there. In our business, we've taken a proven approach since day one. I've been in agronomy for 38 years right there in that county. And I've always, if somebody tells me something, I think the same way you guys ought to do something, say, I'm not sure I buy that. We'll, we'll have to prove it on my farm and my operation. We've run over 300 nitrogen plots since 2008. And there's a lot of data that's come back from that. I'm gonna talk about that Saturday. But we're dealing with a lot of different situations, a lot of different systems out here. And we have to have a proven approach. I've been very blessed to work with very progressive farmers that are willing to do that when we ask them to do plots, and that, that's great for our business. Uh, we work with Environmental Defense Fund, uh, NRCS, both on the state and national level, and uh, Ohio State. We're lucky enough to work with, with Ohio State on five different projects right now at this time, and uh, it's, it is some extra work, but it puts us right up front on the learning curve. This is, uh, Kevin King's gonna follow me up here, and I'll try not to get into his time here, because we, we do this a lot. Uh, this is one of Kevin's edge of field studies, and it's on my farm, my office and, and house is back here in the background, but we're checking phosphorus leaving the field by way of the surface and also through the tile. And when I tiled this farm, Kevin was just coming out with a study and I called him and I said, Kevin, I want one of those on my farm and I'll do whatever it takes to facilitate you getting that in there. It's a great learning experience for us there too. A little background there, but what we're gonna talk about quickly here today is uh, the soil conditions for efficient nutrient recovery, water infiltration, minimal plant stress, I'm gonna show you a few things on our gypsum research project with Ohio State, but most important thing is for last. And I think that I can probably save each and every one of you about 10 bucks an acre this coming year on your phosphorus. Well, maybe not everybody, some of you, I'll, I'll show you where. So we wanna make sure we save some time for that. You've heard this over and over at this conference, uh, talking about soil quality, soil health, you're gonna hear it more. But soil, water, and air have more effect on your yield than your nutrients do. And the nutrients are, are far down the pecking line. 
The grower that can manage that soil structure and health in concert with his nutrients is going to win. And it's about minimizing stress and duration of stress on your crop. When you open that bag of corn today, you probably got somewhere, if you ask the plant breeders, maybe 600 bushel to acre potential. And as soon as you zip it open, you start knocking that potential down. And so your, your yield is actually the sum of the stresses on that crop. So you want to minimize that stress. A soil with good structure, ample microbial life, which you've been hearing about, decent water infiltration rates, need less nutrients on paper on the soil test. And the, the key there is recoverability. I show this slide many times um, only because I, I try to hit home with it here. It's different corn planted all the same time in different soil types. But these two soil types here are the same. And you can see there are different conditions that affected the root proliferation. The moral of the story here is you want to grow as many roots as you can to recover your nutrients. Let's talk a little bit about representative soil tests. Um, and, and I see a lot of different methods out there. It's just really important to represent what you're treating, what you have in your field. This, I use this field as an example. It's a 19 acre field, three soil types in this field. And this is the probes that came out of those three different soil types. We've got a clay loam on the top, we've got a heavy clay in there, and we've got a sandy loam at the bottom. If you or whoever's doing your soil testing mixes those probes together, put them in the same bag, you're gonna get a result back from the lab. Unfortunately, it won't be anything that you have to manage out there. And if you mix those cores of the heavier clay with the sandy loam, you're never gonna put lime on that sandy loam and you're gonna be losing a lot of production. So the, the point I wanna tell you here about nutrient management, make sure you segregate your exchange capacities. Soil testing, quickly here. Uh, it, it doesn't, lab equipment doesn't know pounds per acre. I think we get, we get thinking, you know, we need so many pounds of phosphorus and so many pounds per acre of potash out there and, and everything will be fine. And that's not the way it works. Lab equipment takes a measured volume of soil and then they, they measure for the saturation of the nutrients in that given volume. So we get parts per million. You know, how, how does it get to pounds per acre, someone somewhere along the line said that an acre for a slice of soil weighs two million pounds. So if we know that an acre weighs two million pounds and we have parts per million, then parts per million times two is pounds per acre. Does it mean pounds per acre? No. It's a chart, a scale to, to manage nutrients by. And soil structure and health, probably much more important than the nutrients themselves, don't show on that test. Although we have the, the Solvita test and the soil health test now that I think is going to revolutionize in, in the next five years the way you guys manage nutrients. There's a lot more information that's needed to be known there. Let's talk about that concentration. And I think I can explain it this way. This is a picture of the refrigerator in my room. It's got on that second shelf there one beer. In fact, one of those beers I bought last night that I paid two bushels of corn for. So maybe we're on the wrong end of this. Maybe we ought to be in a beer business and, instead of farming. But 
If I sample that small refrigerator for parts per million beer, I get a number based on the volume in that refrigerator. Now, you guys might know that Frank, he kind of gets a special room here. And this is the refrigerator in Frank's room. And there is on that second shelf an 18-pack of Bud Light. And if you sample Frank's refrigerator for parts per million beer, it's actually less parts per million beer than my little refrigerator. But Frank's got a lot more beer. So what you need is for your crops to eat at the big refrigerator. So you gotta develop a soil condition that allows root proliferation under all conditions. And you know this chart gets lost a lot over time. We, I think it's real easy for guys to manage the chemical properties of your soil, put the nutrients on. This is the tough side over here, but this is also the side where the money is to be made. So you need to pay a lot of attention there. There's three major influences that I feel on the bottom line of farming. We've had a lot of agronomists get together and talk about this once the yield monitor came out and uh, water is the number one thing that controls yield. Water and then minimizing the duration of stress and efficient recovery of your nutrients. Now, can anybody tell me what this is? I'll give you a hint. My folks both grew up in the hills of Virginia. They were the first ethanol supporters and they didn't even know what ethanol meant. But no, Bill, that's not what's in here. This is water. And the most important thing for you in your crop production is water and efficient use of that water and minimizing stresses from that water. Now, it's also a big deal to a lot of other people. We'll talk about that. Just gonna throw this slide in here real quick. This is my own farm. This is cover crops following corn. And I think that cover crops are definitely part of the answer for the future on what you guys have to produce. I started using them as a nutrient sink and they change soil quality so fast. And it's been said here before, comment on what Dean Holst said at, at Cincinnati. Just our normal rotation loses ground. We got to feed the biology and you can't do it with five months a year live crop. So put that into your, your tool kit. This also, in the soils I work on, and I realize that you, we got a diverse crowd out here, but on the clay soils, there's a definite difference between calcium and magnesium. This is a whole system of putting things together to give you optimum soil quality. The, way, the difference between calcium and mag is the way they react with clay and the size of those particles. Water infiltration is affected by them, Calcium helps promote soil structure, and in cl heavy clay soils, magnesium can be antagonistic. It peptizes the clay and spreads particles equidistant from the magnesium and can seal those soils. I'm gonna show you a little bit of, of ways to adjust that here with this gypsum project. This is a, um, NRCS has a little uh, water, or water rainfall simulator kit. And these pans are about four inches by eight inches and five inches deep. You drive them in the soil, you wiggle them, pull that block out, and you can then pour water in the top containers and simulate rainfall on that block of soil that you've got. 
Now these are two Napanee soils, a prevalent soil in the, in the Western Lake Erie Basin, heavy clay. The only difference between the two is this one has 70% base saturation of calcium and 12% magnesium. This one has 50% base saturation of calcium and 20% magnesium, okay? So we dumped a bottle of water, just like this one, on, in that tray on top, which simulates a one-inch rainfall. The one with the, the poor relationship of calcium and mag, this is the runoff. This is the runoff on this one. We have a little bit of runoff, but it is clear. And then this is the run-through. This is the well-balanced soil, and we get that much infiltration, and that's what ran through that high magnesium clay soil, nothing. Now you gotta till that soil. If you're gonna do anything with it, you have to till that soil, so, unless you're gonna adjust that magnesium. But look at what ran off of that soil. That's a one inch rainfall on a four inch by eight inch block of soil, and we've redistributed that much clay and that much soil particles. We can't be doing that and be successful today or in the future. That's what ran off the well-balanced soil. And I've been working with this for a long time, enough to know that there is a big difference between those if you are worried at all about your water infiltration rates. This is a gypsum research project that uh, we're in the fourth year of, working with Dr. Warren Dick at Ohio State. And uh, we, Electrical Power Research Institute is a partner in that project. And we did the field work for, for Warren. Uh, we found farmers to participate. And I wanna note here that these are all good farmers. And these soils have already been well balanced. So you've probably got a lot of other soils where you'll see a much more dramatic increase in phosphorus out through the tile. The, the reasoning behind this study was to see if applying gypsum could hold phosphorus within the field. So we applied one ton. We had to find fields where we could segregate the tile outlets and then catch the tile water at rain events. And this is what started happening the first time we started collecting this water. Uh, clear water, we had farmers calling, but clear water coming out where the gypsum was applied and very turbid water coming out where there was no gypsum, similar to that rain, rainfall simulator that I showed you there. Here's some samples that were 18 months after application of the gypsum. You can still see it. My guys that go out and collect these samples, every time know which ones where. We send those samples to laboratory and have them analyzed for dissolved orthophosphate. And kind of a wordy slide here, we keep it anonymous, but what this shows is the percent reduction in phosphorus in that sample where we applied gypsum. Not real scientific because we don't have flow. Kevin's project is much more scientific. This was, was more just to get the ball rolling on the, these, this type of studies. Uh, again, there's some, some variation there. I think we collected 160 samples before we found the first one that did not have a reduction in phosphorus. And we're seeing this last about two and a half to three years, and then it falls off. I think the, the gypsum is worn out. So what's happening there? The, the sulfate is double negative and is moving down through the soil. The calcium in gypsum is very soluble and 
when it goes on the soil, it bonds with the phosphorus, forms calcium phosphate, and holds it within the, the soil boundaries, the, the field boundaries. This is some pictures that a, a grower took for us. Uh, you can see the, the non-treated area, murky water, foaming, clear water coming out here. In all, to date, we've, and we should be collecting right now, we've got some tile running again, but 240 samples, and we've shown a 50% reduction in phosphorus out the tile. That's enough to take a look at as, as a management way. It doesn't, it's not a tight enough bond, that calcium phosphate, to keep your plant from finding it, but it is keeping it from going out the tile. And tile is very important. You're gonna pay for tile one way or another. I talked about those high magnesium soils, and so while we were sending these samples to the lab, I thought, well, why don't we check them for magnesium too and see if, if those things that all those old wise guys told me about the ability to leach magnesium with gypsum if you're overabundant in your soil conditions to see if that's true. Uh, this is 20 months after application on these samples and we're showing still in the neighborhood of 100% increase in magnesium out the tile. And the sulfate is what's taking it out the tile. It's forming Epsom salts, which is very soluble, and that magnesium sulfate is leaching magnesium and you can adjust that condition in your soil. We'll get back to Joe in just a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist. Today we're talking to Roger Montag, founder and president of the company, about some common questions regarding fertilizer placement and no-till. Roger, thanks for joining us today. Yes, thanks for giving me the opportunity to answer your questions. All right. Well, the first question we'd like to ask you is, what are some typical situations where deep banding fertilizer is better than broadcasting? Well, I'd say typically uh, what we're looking at is the advantages in both cases. If you're, if you're going to ban fertilizer, you're looking at a row crop situation. I would say typically if you're running a broadcast crop like wheat or oats or, or alfalfa, then, then the broadcast option makes more sense. But typically we're looking at a banded application of fertilizer for a banded crop. Our next question is, what is the most efficient method to apply nitrogen? And can you talk a little about the timing of application rates and whether you should use granular versus liquid? Well, I would say in, in the past, we've seen a lot of farmers applying all their nitrogen in the fall as anhydrous ammonia or, or other forms. And we're seeing a lot of times that the, the risks of losing a lot of that, leaching it away, that type of things are kind of high. And so we're, we're kind of going away from there. In a lot of cases, we're seeing more people go into a split application. Maybe we apply some pre-plant, we apply some with the planter. And then we might come back even in side dress. So the split application is, is catching a lot of traction now. As far as the what product you would use, a lot of times that's going to be more related to the area you're from. You might find in one place where where liquid is the most economical approach. Another case, it might be that dry as certain soil types are going to be more adaptable to one over another as well. So the question is a little complicated. It's going to be a little bit related to your conditions and your farming practices and and costs and those type of things. So nitrogen probably isn't as much of a product that the different forms would, would have a lot of differences. 
third question we have here is, do you see long-term advantages with placing fertilizer? I've got quite a few customers who have used placement fertilizer now for, for a good many years. And what they're telling me and what they're finding is that prolonged use of, of banded fertilizer is, is actually giving them a, a higher level of uh, fertility available to the crop. It goes with a lot of other things. If you're applying this in a strip-till application, that, that seems to be a benefit as well. We use a control pattern thing in, in this case as well that keeps the, the compaction down to a minimal surface area which has also given us a, a yield response there. So a lot of times we're putting a lot of these things together, but I would say the majority of guys who have been doing this for, for some years are seeing a definite increase in both yield potential. The ground is becoming more mellow. They're seeing a lot of benefits in the reduced tillage, the strip till added to it, and also increased yield. Next, can you talk a little about deep banding fertilizer in a no-till system? Why should a no-tiller consider deep banding his fertilizer? Well, the no-till guys have a specific problem that's a little bit unique in the fact that they're going to only apply this on the top and then never work it in. So there's a definite time period in there where a lot of that fertilizer they've spent good money on is susceptible to just being washed away by, by heavy rains or, or the like. They also end up with a problem where the, the fertilizer gets kind of stratified on the top of the ground. And because the roots tend to be you know down in the ground and their fertilizer program is very surface plot as far as where it's going to be located, they're, they're not really getting a good benefit from the dollars they're spending. And, and if they would put fertilizer below the crop, and in, in highly erodible ground, we're looking at some fairly low disturbance uh, type applicator that we would use so we don't end up with a, with a lot of erosion and stuff from that. So a lot of no-tillers are pretty sensitive. And, and some of them are, are going no-till for erosion issues. Some of them are doing it for other things. A lot of farmers are going to have a variety of, of different fields and different conditions, and they may have to treat a lot of these things differently in, in one place versus another. Our next question is about cover crops. They've been very popular in recent years. Where do you see them going from here? Well, we're, we're seeing a lot more interest in cover crops. A lot of people are trying to use our equipment, especially our new our new stuff here, which is more of a high-tech, more more of adjustable and a variable uh, rate application, multiple tanks and that type of thing. And we're seeing a lot of guys doing, doing cover crop for a variety of reasons. Some of the benefits you're going to see would be environmental impacts going to be less because you're going to have less uh, less of this fertilizer getting getting where you don't want it. It might be an erosion issue that you're looking for. And, and in some cases, we're seeing that if you plant certain cover crops, you might actually find that you will get uh, nutrients released through that through that cover crop that would not normally be available to, say, a corn or soybean rotation. And so we're seeing a lot of guys who are seeing an increase in available phosphorus, for instance, by planting a, a certain cover crop in there. We're also seeing quite a bit of, of uh, holding those nutrients through the winter, and so the losses are considerably less, especially on nitrogen. I think I think you're going to see uh, there's a lot of reasons. It's a complicated question. It's a little different in various areas. We're seeing applications for cover crop up north where we're actually seeing a few guys who are actually putting that cover crop down with their, with their side dress urea or, or nitrogen process. We're seeing a few other ones who are who are doing it with with a like a high boy or something later, and we're seeing some guys who are coming in there with a uh, after the crop is off and and putting it down with some type of a of a tillage tool. So, a lot of different opportunities there for for cover crop, and a lot of that is going to be uh, somewhat uh, different depending on uh, on your application, different fields, different areas in the country. Window of opportunity is going to be a lot narrower in the north than it's going to be in the south. So. 
So they're they're going to view these things a little bit a little bit different. Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and answer those questions. Yes, yes, I appreciate the opportunity to answer these questions for you, and and hopefully they're beneficial to some of your listeners. Thanks again to Roger for answering those questions. If you'd like to learn more about Montag Manufacturing and the benefits of placing your fertilizer, visit them at www.montagmfg.com or give them a call at 712-852-4572. Now let's hear more from Joe on what he thinks is happening with the algae blooms in Lake Erie and what growers can do to keep phosphorus from leaving their fields. All right, let's talk about Lake Erie here. That, uh, in, in August of 2014, that situation changed there for the worse for us in ag. For those of you that don't know, uh, that the, the algal blooms in Lake Erie are, are fed by phosphorus entering through, through the tributaries into the lake. And agriculture is responsible for a good portion of it. There's numbers that'll bounce around, but a lot of that's coming from ag. That, the algae itself is not good. It, it messes with the fishermen and the boaters and the swimmers and things like that. But this algae has the ability to form a toxin called microcystin with it that flourishes as it heats up in the summertime. And this microcystin is so toxic that humans should not touch the water. It's five to 10 times more toxic than arsenic, and it's three times more toxic than cyanide. It affects your liver. You can't ingest it. You can't touch it. You can't bathe in it. If you boil it, it gets worse. So in August of 2014, the water intake for the city of Toledo is right down in this area here, and the wind blew these toxins in and churned the water up so that the toxins were deep enough that they took it in for the city of Toledo. And for three days, they shut down the whole water supply for the city of Toledo. That was a game changer for agriculture. We'd been working on this, but we never had 400,000 voters really torqued off, which, which they were. I had a scientist tell me that if we'd have had the right weather conditions, we could have shut down Toledo for 30 days. And that would have been real ugly. So I've said on a lot of committees, a lot of different groups that want, you know, want to get this problem fixed uh, over the last several years. The first bloom was in 2008. And this is what I hear blame. I hear no-till blamed a lot. I also hear it blamed from people that don't really understand what no-till is. And I think there's also some people that think there are no-tillers and report that they're no-tillers and they no-till their beans and their corn is massively conventional and the phosphorus goes on the corn. So that's one thing. I've heard tile blame, Kevin, and you're gonna pay for tile. And in order for, for you guys to raise enough food to feed this world in the future, you are gonna have to have tile is, is part of the answer too. Uh, but I've heard tile blame, no starter on planter. Your planters have got so big, you guys quit using starter, you spread it now, that's the problem. High rates, obviously those people aren't paying your bills. Irresponsible practices, I'm sure there's a few of those, but not really, that's not the problem. Wrong time, blanket applications, aggressive sale people. I hear the CAFOs blamed, and I work with several 
animal feeding operations that are really restri restricted on what they can do and do a good job. I've heard tillage blame. So is it no-till or is it tillage? Um, and it is, it's an extremely complex problem. Anybody will tell you that. I think we're working with some outdated guidelines. We need a lot of research. We need it fast. A lot of times research doesn't come fast, but there's new tools available out there for us to get some information back. So are fertility rates the applications guilty? I really don't think so. They track the sale of fertilizer within watersheds. And in the Western Lake Erie Basin, the rates of phosphorus have actually gone down. Soil testing and VRT are up five-fold. Jamie, see, soil testing is bigger and, and getting bigger, right? And you guys are doing a great job with that. Um, I don't see those big levels out there. You got cover crops doing a great job. We got guys laying off of frozen ground with these soluble sources. Livestock permits are out there, strip till injection. We got equipped practices on the ground, costs are up, and also you're raising better yields, better stand improvements that harvest more of that phosphorus. So I've watched you guys do this for the last 38 years, and why wasn't Lake Erie green 10 or 20 years ago is the question that I have. Right now, I'd like anybody that's doing a poorer job today than you did 10 to 20 years ago with your nutrients, raise your hand. I hope there's somebody here from the government that sees that, because that's a fact. We're doing a much better job. So, I think there's been a, a change in the soil chemistry. This is what I've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, and this is a chart of soluble sulfur on the soil test of one farmer. Now, you can't hardly read these numbers, but this is 30 parts per million. And for the, the first 25 years that I was a practicing agronomist, everybody's sulfur levels in my area held in that 30 to 40 parts per million. Then they started dropping. So we dropped this 2,000 acre farmers soil test all into an access database over a 10 year period from 03 to 13. And you got some spikes here. Ignore those because he's used some gypsum and some biosolids over the time that, that will bring those levels up on a few tests. But notice the trend line where we're down now approaching five, six, seven parts per million sulfur. It doesn't matter whose soil test we put into this Excel sheet, they all look the same. So there's a big change out there. Sulfur's very acidic. I went online and the government has this website that you can go check out called the National Atmospheric Deposition Program. And back when the Clean Air Act was passed, they set up these checking stations so that every one of these dots out here are a checking station that capture rainfall and they analyze it for those elements in the Clean Air Act that they have to throttle down and, and keep track of. But this red is sulfate on this map that you used to receive in your rainfall. Now, when you convert the kilograms to hectare, it's somewhere equal to, in 1985, about 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate per acre you guys were getting free. That was a pretty nice deal. Acid rain was good for agriculture. Uh, so that's 2000, or 1985. There's 2000, 2007, and 2012. 
So it's disappeared, and that's why the levels have fallen like crazy. Now, if you click on those, those checking stations, first off, let's, let's emphasize this. If you're in this loop that I drew here, you need to change your phosphorus management strategies. Now, if you're west of that, or if you're across a pond or something, then, then probably not as significant for you. I know there's some high pHs out west that guys struggle with phosphorus availability with and have to use acidifiers. But if you're in that loop, there's a big, been a big change for your phosphorus. When I click on the site closest to me, you can get all this data as far as pH of the rainfall over time. Now, starts at 1976 on the bottom here, and we were at 4.2 pH rainfall for quite some time. In 1992, they passed the Clean Air Act amendments to clean up the acid rain, and they gave everybody 20 years to conform because of the expense and the overwhelming job that was gonna take. But so you can see in 92, this pH started moving up of our rainfall, and in 2008, rockets. If you go a trend line, today we're at about 5.3. And 2008 is when it really took off, and 2008 is when Lake Erie turned green. So this also shows you parts per million sulfate in that test, which has dropped off significantly from 3.5 to well below one part per million now. This is a chart that all agronomists learn from in, in beginning agronomy to try to keep your pH where your nutrients are available to your crop so the chemical reactions happen easily and often to produce optimum crop. And if you look up here, 6.2 to 6.8 is the best sweet spot down through here to, that we try to keep you at. But look at phosphorus. We have 100% phosphorus availability at a 6.5 pH, and at 6.0, we dropped to less than 15% soluble phosphorus. And for the guys that have been around 25, 30 years, you can remember when we used to get cold conditions in the early spring and we'd turn the whole county purple from phosphorus deficiency. That doesn't happen anymore. When we soil test for you, the, the lab assumes that you take a six and two thirds inch deep sample to get parts per million and we blend that, you know, that pH isn't constant throughout that profile, but we always knew in the past the surface of the soil had a low pH. That low pH was tying up phosphorus. Now, instead of a 4.3 rainfall, you have a 5.3 rainfall. The pH scale is logarithmic, remember, so a 5.3 is 10 times more basic than 4.3. So that's a big difference. But that, that lower pH layer on the top was due to just acidifying fertilizers, growing crops, rainfall definitely, not one time, but every time it rained, you were getting that acid put on there. You're probably not gonna have to use as much lime in the future because of that lack of acid rain. And when we quit inverting the soil, that's when we started getting that stagnant low pH layer on top. When we were plowing, we used to turn up a higher pH in the Western Lake Erie Basin, and 40 years ago, we had a problem with Lake Erie too. I don't know if that was due to plowing. There was phosphates and detergents and things too. 
There's a group of consultants that I'm associated with that specialize in sports turf. Uh, one of the guys that work for me handles Tiger Stadium and Notre Dame's football field and, and the Toledo Mud Hens and a lot of prolific golf courses. And those soils, those, those guys do a great job of sampling. They sample a tee box, they might sample the size of this stage. So they can be very representative. But most of those fields have irrigation. So they send in a sample of the irrigation water to the laboratory along with the soil test to get a nutrient solubility test. Because just because the soil test shows that you've got adequate nutrients out there doesn't necessarily mean that the crop's gonna get them. Because you can change the chemistry with the water that you apply, okay? So I had a bunch of soil tests that had run through the lab. When the lab runs a test, they hold them for a period of 60 to 90 days and so I knew the parameters of all these tests. I went back down, recovered them, and then I hand-selected tests from different soil types that were adequate phosphorus levels, and I sent them back to the lab, and I said, I want you to run this nutrient solubility test, except I'm not sending you irrigation water. I want you to fabricate the water. I want to make 4.3 and represent rainfall from 10 to 15 years ago, and I want 5.3 representing today. And so these tests, this is the increase in soluble phosphorus from these different soil types on the tests that I chose, and all I changed was the water that was hitting the soil. Here's some more. I had one outlier, this 18.2% reduction. Hoytville soils, one of the most prominent soils in the Western Lake Erie Basin, I got five and a half times more phosphorus just by changing the pH of the water that hit it. I went back and dug through this one that was an outlier here. That was a prevented plant field over by Stryker, Ohio this year, and the farmer put gypsum on it this summer. And so that altered that soluble calcium in that particular test, just like our, our test with Ohio State, that made that phosphorus less soluble. I think that's what happened there. So. I also showed you that we can leach magnesium and, in, and help water infiltration rates on heavy clay soils. Back 10 and 15 years ago, farmers were getting a free pass that didn't even know anything about this. Every time it rained, the sulfur was leaching magnesium. You can't stop it from leaching magnesium. That's why you have to be very careful of putting gypsum on sandy soils because you're gonna leach magnesium that you're gonna wish you had about mid-June. So the sulfate was leaching that magnesium and that's not happening anymore, anymore. And I really think that that tillage that's happening and the lack of leaching of the magnesium has increased flashiness in these watersheds. I see places where you get you know, one inch and a half of rain now and water goes over the road and that didn't used to happen. So that free pass is gone. In your soils, when we soil test, we measure for plant available phosphorus. And out of all the phosphorus that you have in your soil, it's a very small portion. You have labile phosphorus, which is getting ready to move and can easily move to available phosphorus. And you have non-label phosphorus, which may stay in that non-labile form for quite some time. But we have just a small percentage plant available. Well, with this change in, in the water and your rainfall, what if your available phosphorus now 
has doubled. And I showed you some, some tests that should support that. Your soil test you've been using hasn't changed. It's still, we're using the acid extractant. It's done the same way it was done, done in the past. But what I'm arguing here is the field conditions have changed, which is liberating phosphorus. So what can you do? I think you have to operate under this assumption, if you're in that fallout zone, that phosphorus is more soluble in our soils than it used to be, okay? So the bad news is, for Lake Erie and watersheds, the phosphorus is more soluble. The good news is, for you, the phosphorus is more soluble. So where you've wanted to see 40 to 50 parts per million, maybe 25, maybe 30. I don't know what that number is, but I think you should be investigating it. I haven't seen a phosphorus deficiency on the fields I work on in 10 years. Now, this theory also helps explain why we have several watersheds that have algal blooms that have no agriculture at all in them. They haven't been able to blame that on you guys yet. Now, maybe it's jumping over the watershed, I don't know, but that's happening. But this, this more soluble form of phosphorus theory would explain that. So what can you do? I think you need to, to evaluate your phosphorus rates. Find that breaking point in places. I got guys that are raising 220 bushel corn on 20 parts per million phosphorus. And the book would say that you can't do that. But we're doing it and we're doing it. I, I, you know, they're doing a lot of good things, so we've got good recoverability there. Build a soil test database. Don't guess at this stuff. You, you gotta, it's not an exact science, but you get trend lines, know where you're at on this soil testing. Be, it's gonna be one of the least amount of dollars that you spend. Practice the four R's. Uh, there's some really good best management practices outlined there. Use cover crops. I, I think if, if you're not using them, you ought to try them. If, if you're not using them, talk to somebody who's messed up with them. I, I think that all farmers should have a cover crop guy. I suggest they have a good seedsman. I think you need a cover crop guy. Somebody can tell you who's messed up in other places and keep you from messing up. And then employ practices that enhance soil health and increase that nutrient recoverability. I've got what I call, you know, they got the four R's and I call the four P's of phosphorus. And for those of you that don't know where Ohio is now, we're regulated on what we can do. You have to be licensed if you apply more than 50 acres of phosphorus a year. And there's regulations now as to when you can apply, depending on the weather forecast. There's accountability. And it's coming your way. If it's not to you yet, I can guarantee it's coming your way. But I call this the four P's. So if, if, I'm, if I want to be... Um, having no problem with my operation as far as liability and things down the road. First, I want to prove what I need. So build that soil test database and be representative. When we start working with guys on, on zone management, build off of yield zones, and then we reevaluate it a couple years down the road, they always section those zones down even smaller. It, it pays. That thing is something that you can use to make good decisions on, on whether you have to spend money or not. The second P then would be plan. You gotta, you know, use those four R's, nutrient requirement, do some adaptive management, testing on your own farm, and prove what works for you. Just because it was 
written 25 years ago on a chart does not necessarily mean that's what you need today. I think VRT has a great place in today's agriculture because you have lots of different uh, eco-environments that are going on out there within your field. Lime and gypsum, keep lime up. That's your cheapest, you know, you can have all kinds of nutrients out there and if your lime's out of whack, the plant can't get to it. And work with a CCA or a 4R certified agronomist, somebody that really works hard to keep you up to date on this. The third P would be prepare, and that's where I'm gonna figure out a way to get starter on the planter. Because if you apply when you're planting, you're gonna have a lot more leeway as far as what do you do. Banding and stripping is gonna have a lot more leeway than surface broadcasting. I'd probably look at a narrow track spreader, something that if I got put in a corner, that I could get back in after I've planted corn and spread my phosphorus. I like using a checkbook approach. What you've got in, in your checkbook is fine. If we gotta make a withdrawal because we didn't have a safe, sound time to apply, make a withdrawal. We'll put it back later when it is safe and sound to put it back. And not trying to put a dirty word up here, but there's equipment companies working to find some incorporation tools that don't mess up your no-till conditions. And I'd be looking at something like that. And I'd have a weather station, something that records what happened when on your farm. Uh, and the last thing then is prioritize. You're gonna have narrow windows of application coming due to regulation and know where to focus that may affect your crop plan. So again, there's the, the four P's that I would try to manage phosphorus by. Thanks again to Joe Nestor for sharing what we know so far about dissolved phosphorus runoff and providing some practices growers can consider implementing to protect their phosphorus and local waterways. If you'd like to view any of the slides from Joe's presentation, go to notillfarmer.com and click on Podcasts under the Resources tab. There you'll find a link to this episode where his PowerPoint presentation will be available. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 26th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. The 2018 event is taking place for the first time in Louisville, Kentucky from January 9th through the 12th. Register by August 31st to save $85. For more information or to register, visit notillconference.com. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest No-Till Farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Joe Nestor, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Lara Barrera. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.